Welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Luisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. We are talking today to John Ioannidis. He is an epidemiologist um, at Stanford School of Medicine, where he works in uh, disease prevention in the School of Medicine. He's also a data scientist. Important for us also, he is an Einstein BIH, so Berlin Institute of Health Visiting Fellow, and going to be spending some time in Berlin to uh, establish a um, kind of like a clone of the Metrics Institute from Stanford, the Metrics B, so Metrics Berlin. And we'll be talking to him about that and some other issues. Yes, he wrote. A, he's a very interesting man. He wrote a very... Um, provocatively titled paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, back in 2005. So I'm very much looking forward to asking him about that. So I'm uh, John Yanidis. I'm a professor of uh, medicine of health research and policy of uh, biomedical data science and statistics at Stanford, where I co-direct uh, Metrics, the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford. And uh, we recently also launched Metric B uh, in Berlin. Yeah, um, I, we saw the press release, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit what Metric B is? What's it, what's it aiming to do? Metric B is a sister center to Metrics, and uh, both centers are trying to evaluate and improve research practices. Uh, the way that we do research, the way that we evaluate uh, research, the way that we reward scientific investigation, uh, the, the way that uh, the, the whole scientific structure is set up. Um, how do we run science, and, and can we run it in a better way so that we get more reliable, more credible results that are more useful and uh, and do that faster, if possible. The metrics and the Metric B Center, um, are they kind of building on this? So you've, you kind of famously wrote this article in 2005 um, about the, um, the so results are false. false. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel that these centers are a way of kind of combating that? Or kind of what's the relationship between those two things? Well, I, I think that um, the 2005 paper was just uh, one uh, part of a much longer narrative, a much longer stream of investigation, not just by myself, but by many scientists working across very diverse fields and showing that um, uh, we have uh, a challenge in in trying to to get to more reliable and more trustworthy results and there's many reasons why we'd not get there as fast as we wish and as efficiently as we wish so there's lots of stumbling blocks and identifying these stumbling blocks and removing them and uh, expediting the the process of doing good science i, I think is uh, is a worthwhile effort uh, across very different scientific domains. 
Yeah, absolutely. Can you can you make um, can you name some specific examples? Like, so what exactly um, the metric center? Like, like, we have a project already, for example, um, planned for well, I'm sure you have many projects, but can you just name a very like specific example of something um, that the metric center is doing? So you you can uh, uh, categorize uh, projects uh, as projects that look at uh, what is happening uh, versus what should happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, also projects that are trying to change uh, what is happening. So um, the the first category would include uh, assessments of uh, the scientific uh, landscape. Uh, some of them are very a broad bird's eye views of uh, what uh, uh, different scientific disciplines are doing in terms of, uh, uh, for example, uh, practices like sharing their data uh, and uh, registering protocols uh, and uh, uh, using appropriate methods, uh, for example, statistical methods uh, or uh, pre-registration of um, ideas and hypotheses to be tested or transparency about conflicts of interest, uh, or transparency about the sources of funding and how these might influence potentially the conduct of research, uh, whether there's emphasis on just uh, new uh, findings or, or some effort to replicate uh, whatever findings are being produced and how this is being done. Is it done in a rigorous way? And uh, whether there's integration of evidence or, or more like scattered efforts across multiple teams uh, that give a, a very uh, hazy, if not misleading picture of the, the scientific landscape instead of joining forces and seeing the complete picture or as complete as possible. So uh, one part is to understand where different fields are standing in regards to these practices and, and uh, these indicators and also find ways to, to measure these practices more efficiently because obviously it, it can be different if you try to read uh, one paper at a time and you try to go up to 160 million papers that you need to read to test the entire literature uh, versus you have new methods and new techniques that you can assess uh, large segments of the literature pretty reliably. The, the second component is uh, how do you change uh, suboptimal practices? Uh, so, for example, uh, once you document, and this has been documented, that uh, you have a suboptimal use of statistical methods across many different scientific fields. Uh, these methods sometimes uh, may be so suboptimal that they may be at the core of uh, making misleading inferences and then going astray, wasting resources, pursuing leads that uh, should not really be pursued, uh, or pursuing the wrong lead um, versus uh, something else. Um, how do you improve uh, use of better methods? How, how do you develop better methods and how do you develop methods that can be adopted? How do you change the landscape of uh, what methods people use for making inferences, for making analysis and for making statistical uh, conclusions uh, to and, and make them in a way that uh, they can be trusted? Or how do you improve um, uh, registration practices. Uh, how do you convince uh, more, more researchers, more stakeholders, more institutions to uh, improve registration when registration is appropriate? Or how do you improve uh, uh, sharing of data? Uh, we see some movement over the last few years with uh, uh, more data sharing uh, across a very different scientific field, but still there's quite a lot of way to go. So I, I think that these are the two major poles, understanding the problems and then trying to fix them. 
So how, how do you actually convince more people to pre-register the uh, studies or, well, hypothesis? Or how do you convince people to share data? Let's start from uh, registration. I, I think that uh, there's a combination of approaches. Uh, typically, you need to have uh, multiple stakeholders uh, really push in the same direction and have an agenda that is uh, aligned. And in, in registration, the idea has been floated for many, many years, but uh, it started gaining traction in medicine, for example, for clinical trials, uh, once we had multiple stakeholders uh, agreeing that this is something that needs to be done. Uh, so clinicaltrials.gov started really being successful only when uh, it was required to register clinical trials by regulatory authorities. At the same time, though, also all the major general journals uh, that uh, people would wish to publish their work to become famous and to be widely disseminated also agreed that uh, they will not accept a paper unless it is pre-registered. And, and gradually that process became a sine qua non. Uh, we still have about 50% uh, of randomized trials that are not registered and in, in some fields and for some types of interventions like uh, uh, nutritional or behavioral interventions or psychotherapies, possibly the proportion is even larger. But at least we, we have made substantial progress uh, to, to have a, a large segment of trials uh, be in some registry. Uh, in, in, in a similar way, one can think of other domains where registration is still lagging behind about what would be the incentives or the traction that needs to be applied to convince more scientists to uh, register uh, their work. And, and I, I think that some of that could be regulatory, but in, in research that has no regulatory implications, it has to be the scientific communities. Um, yeah, and the second uh, question: How do you how do you encourage to share data? Is there empirical evidence? Is there evidence showing that if you share data, you're more successful? I think that would be the fantastic argument. Yeah. So success uh, is uh, sometimes difficult to define, and I, I think that we need to be cautious not to overinterpret some measures like bibliometric measures or, or utilization measures. But uh, clearly, we have seen over the years, uh, uh, more sharing of data in several scientific fields. And we see that uh, when data are shared, uh, they are used, uh, they are cited, uh, people are uh, creative uh, about them. They can uh, uh, be, have more trust about what is being presented to them in uh, publications, which would otherwise be just simple advertisements that some research has been done. In some empirical assessments that we have run of the landscape of the entire biomedical literature, for example, we have seen that uh, if you were to take a, a just a randomly selected biomedical paper published in 2000, less than 1% of uh, these papers would have some uh, shared raw data. And um, currently it is about 20 to 25% of uh, the randomly selected uh, biomedical papers published uh, in, in the last couple of years that uh, do share their, their raw data. In, in some fields, it has become the norm. It's uh, pretty much expected by anyone that they would do that. Many fields in, uh, in genetics and other omics uh, have routinely made uh, their raw data available. Uh, policies are in place by funders that they request that this is done 
uh, as a default. Uh, journals, uh, in some cases, have also asked to see more data sharing, although I think that um, uh, we should see more progress in that regard, especially in fields beyond omics, like clinical trials, for example, or clinical research, where still there's only a minority of journals that require for their own data to be available. So we, we do see an evolution of standards. We, we do see more sharing. Uh, we, we see new uh, ways of using and uh, uh, really making progress based on these data that are being shared. In, uh, in several fields, uh, the greatest challenge had been that uh, the uh, data originator needs to have some privilege and, and they need to have the time to, to use the data that they have generated and uh, build their career uh, using these data, get credit for uh, their work and for their publications that stem from uh, these data. And therefore, uh, they shouldn't be sharing because then they would be losing that advantage that reflects their own work. In, in the current environment, I think that uh, this argument has become very weak because uh, much of the data sharing um, uh, it, it really facilitates even the data originators to materialize the, the value of uh, whatever they have collected. And, and otherwise, if they were to just be alone trying to make use of their single slice of data in a much larger environment where far more information has been generated by multiple teams, they would not really be very competitive. Most of the analysis that they would do would be underpowered uh, or not very informative, as opposed to the cumulative knowledge that could be obtained from joining uh, these uh, data generators' efforts in, in larger data sets that, that can be jointly analyzed. So I, I think that there is a change in perspective, there is a change in standards. It's not happening in all fields. I think that there's still many fields that are more resistant and more recalcitrant and are less willing to share. At least uh, the, the major teams have not done that. But I, I think that the, the overall trend is towards more openness and, and more sharing. This is, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I, I think the first time that we have someone on the podcast actually painting a positive picture of the... Of yeah, it's <laughs> nice to have an optimist yeah. on board. <laughs> and that's actually even evidence-based optimist. So the best kind. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so I, I wonder, like, what, what do you think are the main drivers for this optimistic uh, future uh, open world? I think it's a combination of, of multiple factors. Uh, and uh, again, much like in the registration story, we need to have confluence of, uh, of multiple stakeholders and, and multiple reasons in order to uh, successfully promote data sharing just as well. I, I think that funding agencies could really make a difference. And I think that they have made a difference in, in, in some uh, types of uh, studies, because obviously, if uh, you demand data sharing to be a sine qua non as a, a condition for, for funding, I think that this is a very strong incentive. And it, obviously, it can be watered down, but, but it, it is important. I think that we should ask uh, for even more unambiguous uh, wording and implementation of the policies of funding agencies that are already asking for data sharing and ask them to even extend these policies to additional types of data. I think that scientists are also by themselves recognizing that it is important to share. 
and in many fields like um, in uh, genetics, they realize that unless they share, they cannot really go very far. So in in uh, in genetics, uh, I think that uh, we had reached a point about uh, 10, 12 years ago that uh, we were publishing tons of studies, but uh, whenever someone was trying to replicate any of these studies, almost none of them could be replicated. People were doing just uh, uh, small investigations based on their own data without much sharing. Based on what we know now, just doing these small studies, uh, uh, trying to identify single variants in the genome for associations with various uh, uh, disease and phenotypes was was entirely crazy. You know, we we didn't know back then, but but now that we know, it it it, it was just a shot in the dark with with hardly any chance of of success. Once we started building large consortia where people would share their data widely across multiple dozens and hundreds of investigators working in the same consortia, and then even making the data publicly available to be used in even larger analysis. Uh, then we started seeing some reproducible research uh, signals that could be seen repeatedly across multiple teams that uh, um, were apparently real as opposed to uh, all, all the non-reproducible signals in, in the past. I think that other fields are also going through these transformative steps and, and they recognize that uh, by having openness and sharing and, and having a, a more rigorous plus open approach, to science can really allow them to, to make progress. In, in, in some fields, this type of sharing environment is designed from the very beginning as, as, uh, as the first block of, of building a scientific field, like uh, much of what has happened in experimental physics. Instead of having 30,000 physicists, each one of them trying to do little experiments in their lab, they just have one common a uh, set of experiments that they all participate in, and all the data can be analyzed jointly. It, it would have been impossible to do it otherwise. So I, I think it's both necessity and uh, genuine scientific uh, need that is driving this transformation. And I, I think we will see more of that in the future. Hmm. Um, yeah, um, I wonder, uh, how fast can we, do you think all data can be shared? Like basically, um, how fast can we arrive at, because it has taken quite a long time now to come to a 25% mm -hmm. increase. Uh, that's what I'm taking home, uh, take home message. Any random paper you take and out of 25% of them will have uh, some kind of data sharing going on the paper. So uh, how far, how fast can we reach the 100% and is it even desirable? I think that uh, there may be some situations where uh, it is legitimate to have some restrictions in in how uh, extensively data are shared. Um, you know, the, the the one option is to have data that are entirely open and uh, available in public for anyone to to use, or reuse, uh, do whatever they want. Um, I think that. There, there may be some situations that maybe there, there are some reasons why some data sets, especially from previous studies that have already started in the past, and for example, they have some explicit informed consent requirements uh, 
that uh, do not allow the, the sharing of the, of the information. Uh, I, I would argue even in these cases, th there are ways that we can promote some sharing, uh, either in a more limited scale or in a de-anonymized way uh, or, or both. And I, I think that uh, without being able to say that uh, every single data point that is being collected should be shared with everyone, there should be ways that we can substantially improve uh, data sharing uh, proportions and, uh, and standards uh, in the future. I, I'm, I'm willing to discuss exceptions on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, and, and in some situations these exceptions can be handled with proper attention to safeguarding privacy, for example, or other considerations where uh, one needs to think about what exactly the, the best data sharing plan would need to be. So when we say about open data to researchers, they often say, well, what about sensitive patient data? Yes, and, yes. Uh, that's that, you know, which is understandable. And we, we do these workshops for the life sciences and, you know, this is kind of some of the stuff they're dealing with. And the, the, the fear is that this will, um, one, expose someone or link back to someone and that data could be used in some, you know, malicious way. And uh, so is that, does that actually happen? Is that a real thing? So, so yes, this is a, a real concern. And, and this is why I did not answer the uh, quest uh, for 100% uh, data sharing in, in the affirmative. I, I think that there are types of data that have privacy issues, that uh, they're sensitive, that uh, we need to find ways to, to protect that, that privacy and, and the sensitivity. And uh, this is why you need to have a very strong interface between data sharing initiatives and uh, ethics and informed consent uh, whenever it comes to uh, information that, that may have other uh, repercussions. I, in a way, by opening uh, data or, or uh, even by discussing about how to open data and uh, what type of data we should open, we kind of probe uh, also the, the depth and the quality of the information upon which the scientific enterprise is built. It's, it's a little bit like seeing uh, what is beneath the surface of the water in the oceans. And uh, very often there's lots of uh, uh, junk and um, you know, things that have been thrown away in, in the depths of the, of the ocean. Uh, many of these uh, data sets are, are, are really uh, just horrible. <laughs> um, you know, not, not just for, for lack of, of privacy protection, but also for, for the quality of the information. So I don't want to be an uncritical enthusiast that uh, just by opening data, we will save the world. Uh, I, I think that uh, we need to think very carefully, what are we talking about? Uh, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? In a way, openness should help us more understand the weaknesses. And uh, also, uh, what are the threats of, uh, of data accumulation? There, there's just lots of waste being accumulated in various data sets. And um, that waste in combination with, uh, with privacy violations can be dangerous at times. It, it, it may really expose people. It may do more harm than good. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we also, when we talked to Eva Mendes from the European um, Open Science Policy Platform, the, the chair, uh, she's also a metadata researcher librarian, um, and she also introduced this concept, well, it was, for us it was introduced, um, of kind of like um, um, data you don't want to show in the public, not because it's, uh, you know, wrong in any way or, uh, um, yeah, it's just not really in a, it's not dressed nicely, you know. I would argue that just throwing a data set out there without uh, really having uh, some envelope of uh, what these data are about, uh, what do they represent, uh, how they have been collected, what are the strengths and weaknesses in, uh, in what they represent, uh, what is their propensity for errors, uh, what type of errors might have affected them. Is um, is a very naive uh, type of expectation that you know we just have data and the data will just self-organize themselves and tell us the truth. Mm -hmm. I I don't believe that. I think that they will just add more noise unless sharing of that information is coupled with some very serious thinking about uh, methods and biases and uh, uh, what is good and what is bad about these data sets. I, I agree that we see lots of data sets that. Uh, currently just uh, are imposing authority based on, on their large sample, because it's very easy to collect large sample data sets in many circumstances, much of the time pretty automatically, uh, but they, they're very, very uninformative or misleading because the, the, the way that they have been compiled is so biased and so suboptimal and so error prone that um, uh, we can't really get much out of them. So I'm, I'm very much in favor of openness in sharing. At the same time, I think this needs to be coupled with better training and better understanding of, uh, of what it is to uh, pay attention to when you're handling data and, and when you're collecting, when you're uh, assembling, when you're analyzing data. I, th I think that... Uh, uh, we still have a long way to go to try to improve statistical and data science uh, literacy and numeracy, uh, both in the scientific community and also in other stakeholders, including the general public, who, who may have an interface with, uh, with data. Uh, just going back to your famous 2005 paper, so why are all the results false? And we already briefly touched um, the statistical power and... Um, then that, uh, yeah. Um, but you also talk about the sample sizes and um, basically um, bad study design in many ways or an, uh, an awareness of uh, proper study design. I wonder if there's something else than um, something else technical that uh, it's really like easy to fix that would make our results less false and more producible. So the, the, the 2005 paper um, did not claim that all the results are, are wrong. It did claim that in, in most fields, the way that we were doing our scientific investigations, the, the chances were very high. And in, in most fields, they would be over 50% um, that uh, when we came up with a new finding that had nominal statistical significance, it, it would be a false signal. And um, there's multiple considerations to that. Some of them are 
possible to fix. Others are inherent in uh, the type of uh, research questions that some fields are asking. So the, the, the parts that we cannot fix are how complex and how difficult the, the field is. And um, th this translates to how many questions we're asking or we have to ask in order to hit upon some that uh, underlie some true interesting signals. And in, in some fields, maybe they're extremely complex. We can ask uh, zillions of questions, but there's very few genuine uh, facts to be uh, discovered. So even if we do a perfect job, uh, only very few of the questions, only very few of the tests, only very few of the analysis that uh, we are throwing uh, to to the data are, are going to hit upon something that is uh, uh, is worth discovering, that, that there's something there to be discovered. Yeah, Getting that out of the way, um, we can optimize our chances if uh, we do better studies that, that are by default uh, having the best possible chances to, to make these discoveries and to avoid making discoveries out of things that don't really exist. So better, larger, less biased, less conflicted, more transparent, uh, more thoroughly presented rather than selectively presented studies can help us to maximize our potential. Uh, if, if we have some of that, but not all of that, we may still be in a miserable situation because you may have very large studies that have perfect power and uh, still, you you may have tremendous uh, false positive uh, rates and uh, misleading claims if you cannot control bias. Actually, extremely large studies with uh, bias being un unfettered uh, can be a complete disaster. And I, I think that we see that with lots of the big data type of efforts that are happening right and left. If you manage to get a sufficient sample size and you have good protection from bias in the analysis or in, in the design and analysis of the study, uh, things can still go wrong if uh, you have selective reporting. If, uh, if people uh, use some filters that are inappropriate to try to present results and narratives that are selective uh, distortions of uh, what has been found with otherwise perfectly done and perfectly uh, conducted studies. If you have conflicts of interest that uh, affect the overall process and they want to uh, lead to a particular interpretation and a particular conclusion, even if you have very well done studies, uh, again, the final product may be very misleading. Uh, maybe the, the study will be perfect, both in design and analysis and reporting, but still very misleading because it was set up from the very beginning in a way that it would answer a question in ways that no matter what, the result would be favorable for the sponsor, for, the, for example. Uh, so it's a, it's a perfect study, but uh, asking the wrong question or a biased question. There's multiple layers that things can go wrong. And um, I think the first step is realizing these different layers. And the second step is to try to preemptively uh, remove their influence. 
if possible. And if one cannot do that before doing the research, at least be aware of, of their existence and try to take them into account uh, while interpreting uh, the research that has been done. Mm. It's really difficult life sciences, though. I mean, it, I'm just like listening to it and like thinking, going back in my head um, to times when I was still working in the, in the lab, you know, and doing my experiments. It's like in many cases, I think maybe there was like a, even the perfect study design and no conflict of interest and um, no bias. But basically, my um, craftsman's skill sort of <laughs> was not there, you know, like this, this um, life science, especially like lab, wet lab um, sciences basically depends so much on that you're actually able to work with your hands, right? Like do this like little fiddly things and be able to repeat mm -hmm. them in a proper manner. And um, it's just really hard. And, and sometimes it's, it's just you, you manage once and it's still real, you know? It's, I, I'm just thinking like how, um, how to say, well, how, I mean, of course, years of practice, but this is not really an option for a PhD student. Um, yeah, I think it's just incredibly hard. So like the, it sounds so objective and easy to fix. So declare conflict of interest, think what your bias is, but there are so many other things that can go wrong where, um, um, yeah, um, maybe there, it's, it's impossible to make a perfect study or, um, yeah, I, I agree. But um, at the same time, there should be some components that should be fairly objective and, and fairly possible to standardize. Um, th there's a lot of debate about that component of, uh, of personal skill. And I, I see that as a, a bit equivalent to, to art. Like, you know, if you ask people to paint, not everybody will be a Picasso. Uh, and uh, some, some people will not even be able to to copy a painting by uh, Picasso, uh, even if you know, they have it in front of them. <laughs> uh, they try to do it again. Uh, maybe they don't even have the capacity to, to just copy something that has been done. Um, very often, important details are missing and uh, the methods are very sketchy. So one needs to improvise and iterate and reiterate and try different ways and one of them eventually works but then next morning it doesn't and therefore maybe it was not that particular element but something else that just happened to be fulfilled last night but not this morning. What that means to me is that in this type of experimentation we can try to improve the documentation of what exactly is being done. So which means more transparent, more complete, more thorough methods at a minimum. You may still have a component that is very difficult to describe that has this artistic flavor. But then I would argue if if you have scientists that are doing their best to, to try to reproduce an experiment, they are well trained they they maximize their transparency and uh, description of detail and and they cannot really get something to be reproduced again um what does that mean about that experiment in terms of its ability to inform downstream translational efforts like using that experiment to uh, design a drug target or to create a, a drug or or an intervention and, and you know using that intervention in humans I would argue if if we still have so shaky understanding of how that experiment works or does not work, I, I would feel a, a bit 
um, skeptical the least uh, about moving it forward to implementation in um, in 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 real people and and patients and unless I understand what is going on, why can I not reproduce the results? Why, why is it so difficult? Uh, I, I think if we miss that component, jumping into a narrative that leads to translation is even dangerous. Hallelujah. No optimist. <laughs> no, really, the first one. Where? Yeah. So, okay, but not only optimist as in uh, wishful thinking, but like really someone who has data to show uh, we are going somewhere. We are we are on the on the right path. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was very clear that there is a positive change um, over time, and um, I thought that was particularly um, encouraging considering his focus on reproducibility. Mm. Um, so, you know, that this, obviously he, he's recognized this as a problem and, you know, John Ioannidis is one of the, the people who is leading this in terms of actually gathering data. Um, and he wrote a paper, which doesn't sound very optimistic, but when you talk to him, he's actually very, um, you know, very encouraging, I think about the work that's being done. I'm, I'm so glad we finally found someone who is like, yeah, we're going because you know I'm an optimist. I'm really an optimist. I'm always saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's we have problems, but now we're starting to know how to deal with them. At least we're recognizing we have a problem. You know, that's the first step, and yeah, yeah. we're going somewhere. So, I'd also really liked his answer to my somewhat. Uh, well, it was a bit provocative, not really, but I just basically I was thinking, you know, when I was asking about uh, um, the magic of doing science, right? So in life sciences, often people say like, oh. Well, you know, it only works um, if you uh, turn around the Eppendorf tube five times over your left uh, index finger. I don't know, something, you know, and uh, spit three times uh, into the sink next to it. I don't know, whatever, you know. The magic, yeah. the the right moon phase or something. Um, and yeah, like I had a friend who was, um, a friend, a colleague who was uh, measuring. He had a protocol, um, quite elaborate protocol for isolating something and it was the incubation times were cigarette breaks. So, um, But these were actually very producible because these were men who could smoke a cigarette in two minutes. So uh, that was really clearly, you know, reproducible <laughs> protocol. But only for smokers. So only for smokers. Sm- only very particular smokers, you know, But because every yeah. smoker also has a different timing of the smoking. So vaping may have now undone that. that oh, totally. That would not work for vaping. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Anyways, back to the topic. Now, it's really, I, I think it's the reproducibility. Of course, you can only have it if you know what, like if you write down what you're doing, even if it's like, I mean, there's no magic. It's just, you know, maybe just lucky coincidence, but you can also write it down, you know. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it only happens on a full moon or something, that's not science. That's, yeah, that's, that, there shouldn't really be magic in science in that <laughs> sense. There shouldn't be. You know, superstition. No, it's just sometimes like lucky coincidence and that's something that works and then, yeah, you try yeah, to recreate but it, but yeah. Yeah, but if you can't replicate it, then it's not much use really, is it? No. Nah, uh, nobody nah. can build on your work. No, it's just so. anecdotal something, yeah. Yeah. Um, One time is no time, that's what he used to say. Oh, yeah. nice. Three times is better, ten. You start to believe it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You should probably get on a T-shirt or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about the work that um, John's doing as he continues um, with this fellowship at BIH um, in Berlin. Um, so hopefully we can meet up with him again soon and um yeah have like a follow-up conversation yeah yeah uh, that would be really nice especially if you keep saying optimistic things yeah yeah so we just come back to him every now every once in a while to to get encouragement um so yeah if you're interested in the work that john is doing in the metrics b center in berlin or indeed if you're an american listener listener and interested in the original metrics in stanford um We'll be posting a link in the show notes and, you know, I'm sure John would love to hear from you um, about his work. That's it for today. It is. On the optimistic note, open science is coming. It's working, guys. It's working. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, stay strong and do open science and, uh, well, see you in two weeks. Indeed. Uh, This podcast was made possible as part of the Orion Open Science Project. Uh, it's a really cool project. There's loads going on. Um, just Google Orion Open Science and um, you'll, you can find loads of information and training materials on the website. And the recording is being done at the Max Delbuck Center for Molecular Medicine. It's a research institution in the Helmut Association located in Berlin. And um, you can get in touch with us at um, Orion at mdc-berlin.de or for the German speakers, mdc-berlin.de. You can also get in touch with us on social media. Uh, We have a Facebook page, but Twitter is probably more direct. So that's um, OOSP underscore OrionPod. Follow us, tweet us, message us, whatever you feel like. Oh, and tell about us to your friends. That would be nice. Yeah, Yeah. retweets. Retweets, guys. Retweets make make a podcast happen. They make a happy, happy Orion podcast presenters, more importantly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, the music was brought to you by Fabio de Miguel and sound sound editing is done by Paula Oliveira. Bye for now and uh, another episode in two weeks. Bye. Bye.